The Competitive 40K Network presents Art of War. Art of War. Strategy and tactics. Discussions with the best players on the planet. Now your host, Steve Joll and the Art of War coaches. Hi, folks, and welcome to the Art of War podcast. This is an exciting episode, something a little different today. My name's Steve Joel. I am one of your hosts. I feel like we've got this whole catalog of hosts today as we celebrate the winning of the Cherokee Open, which has just run, uh, and one of the most popular armies in the whole game of 40K, Tau. Everybody loves Tau, right? So we'll get to that in a second, but first let me say hello to my uh, co-host that I haven't actually seen for a little while, haven't been in the same room with for a little while. John Lennon, how are you? Hello, hello. I am happy to be here. You know, with how much towers at Cherokee open, I'm, I'm almost glad I didn't go. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Everyone loves them, John. <laughs> Everyone loves the towel. Uh, so listen, let me just explain what's going to happen. If you are new to the Art of All podcast, this is the way it works. We're going to do this episode in two parts. In part one, we're going to look at the list I say the list. Actually, in this case, it's two lists because there were two really different Tau armies at the top table at the Cherokee Open, and we're going to look at both of them with the winner and the runner-up and just examine the differences and see why one player took one and the other player took the other and how it all kind of worked out through the tournament for both. So part one is a lesson in list building. We're going to look at every part of the list and why it's in there and what got left out and why. And just the warlord traits and whatever relics were taken and how they add to the list and why Tau is just so damn good at the moment. In part two of the episode, we're going to look at matchups, how Tau plays into pretty much everything else, probably custodies primarily, and then everything else as well. So whatever army you run or whatever archetype you run, we're going to learn how it plays into Tau, what you can do against Tau, and then Tau, uh, the Tau army at the moment plays against your army as well so there's a lot of learning to do over the next little while and maybe it's best if we just crack into it and introduce our two guests first of all the man that won the cherokee open jack harpster welcome along good to have you back my friend thank you glad to be on um i don't believe i've ever been on the flagship podcast before i have it must have been a while ago um hard to remember which one i know i've been on unbroken uh, a couple times don't believe I've ever been on Down Under. I've done Down Under a couple times, but this one. Uh... This one you've been on as a as a stand-in host not very uh... long ago when John wasn't available. You stood in and we, you and I, together spoke to someone else. But um, it's is it tough? One thing I think that folks like me are curious about is how difficult it is to pick up an army and run with it and get to a tournament and know... Things like, you know, how much damage it can do in certain situations and when to play which stratagems and that sort of thing. You've picked up Tau, you've gone into this, you had, I think I'm right in saying, Custodes at the LVO. Uh, how big a deal is that change when you're running a new army? Uh, well, it's a pretty big deal. I knew how much damage they could put out because um, Siegs beat me like a drum during a, uh, a stream game, one of our War Room games. And I was like, oof, they, they seem pretty good. Unfortunately, I was not able to get a single practice game before the event. So my first game with Tau was the first game of the event. I've played nine games of Tau so far. <laughs> okay. So um, it, it is a very different army to pick up. Fortunately, it's similar to other armies that I've played in the past. It's similar to the passive mode that Grey Knights were able to play with uh, with 
Dread Knight sitting back. It's similar to other shooting armies I've played. It moves very quick, so it's the same as other shoot, other quick armies. Um, so you can translate some of that skill, but uh, yes, it is a very, very different army to Custodes, and I actually like the play style more. Wow, interesting. Okay, and it's, uh, you know, and we'll get to this, but it, it obviously plays really differently to the way Tau played through 8th and then through the first part of ninth before the Codex dropped. Uh, Jack, why don't you go ahead and introduce us to our other guest today, the man that was across the table from you in that final. So, yeah, um, our other guest is Quentin Johnson, ranked uh, 20th last year in the uh, ITC. So he's been doing pretty good for himself. And he's, uh, I think he's, he's gone to three events so far this, uh, this season, right? Four now. So I think you should for be now, yes. For now, yes. So you should be ranked uh, pretty high at, uh, at the moment. So you uh, you're currently ranked number five in the season. I imagine that's going to change with uh, second place at Cherokee. So yes. you've been doing pretty good. You also made your way up. We're playing um, cow lists that are slight variants on the same archetype, and you also did phenomenally well with it. Indeed, I did. Quinton, how long have you been playing Tau? Are you a long-time Tau player, or is this relatively new for you as well? I'm about as far from Jack as you can get. When I was 12 years old, my cousin was enlisting in the army, and he had about 4,000 points of Tau that he had to get rid of, and he sold them to me for $75. <laughs> so wow. I've been playing them for about 10 years. Okay, that is a good deal, my friend, especially now. That is a great deal. Okay, well, yes. listen, uh, part one of this is about getting through the lists. And as Jack just mentioned, there are differences in your lists. So let's start with the winning list, Jack. Why don't you uh, take us through what you've got? Farsight Enclaves is how it was listed in BCP. So what you got? Absolutely. So it's uh, actually a Farsight Enclaves allied world. So it's a custom sept taking the allied world trait, which lets you get the trait, the... Um, not the relic, but the warlord trait, the trait, and the uh, stratagem of one of the main sets. So I took Farsight Enclaves, which gives you, um, it automatically treat any opponent within 12 inches as having a marker light on them, which really helps reliability. And you get a wound reroll, which helps some. A lot, of, a lot of high quantity of shots, so the wound reroll isn't the biggest deal, but it is nice when you have plasma rifles, that sort of thing. Um, and drop zone clear is the stratagem for Farsight Enclaves. When you deep strike a crisis suit unit, you reroll hits and wounds, which is pretty phenomenally strong. Uh, it's 2 CP for a 3 crisis uh, unit, and it is 3 CP for more than that. So I have some 3-man three, three crisis units, and I have some 5-man crisis units. So I was using that quite a bit. Uh, going into the list, I have Shadow Sun in a uh, Supreme Command. So she is my warlord. Because she's in a supreme command, she's allowed to be Tau Sept. And that gives her a ex extends all the ranges of her auras up to 12 inches with her drone. Means her chapter master ability is out to 12 inches, which she has. She can point at a unit and give it four rerolls to hit. And she has decent shooting, not amazing, but she makes she's the only source of four rerolls to hit in the army outside of drop zone clear, which you can only use the turn you come in. Um and she's forced to be your warlord, unfortunately, because her warlord trait isn't the best. It lets you redeploy any unit. That sounds really good, but it's locked to Talcept, so she's the only one who can be redeployed. There was a lot of deploying her nine inches in front of my opponent's army and then redeploying her back. Uh, she's the only uh, viable target. I have two commanders, one of which rerolls all hits and all wounds, and has three cyclic ion, and 
the thermoneutronic projector, so he's actually pretty good in combat, as well as the Bagel Hunter's Plate, or the Bagel Hunter's Plate, which makes him even more durable. So there's a one-up armor save with Iridium and five of Fuma Pain. Got two drones in there. I have a Cold Star with a high output burst, the um, prototype burst, as well as two plasma rifles. And uh, the Warlord Trait Exemplar, the Montcar, where I point at a unit and I say, hey, you reroll all wound rolls if you're within uh, 12 inches of your opponent. I then have two big crisis units, uh, one five man with all shield generators, so double plasma rifles and a cyclic ion, and four drones. I also have a second one with uh, five man with two air bursts apiece, tau flamer and target locks to ignore cover, and another four drones. I have two three man bodyguard squads with double plasma rifles and a cyclic ion apiece and one shield drone. Then I have uh, a squad of stealth, four stealth suits with a homing beacon and two, uh, two drones, as well as two squads of crute and three squads of crute hounds. Yeah, it's a long time since we've seen crute and crute hounds in a uh, in a competitive tower list. You can sometimes see them on the table because people just, you know, for the memes. But uh, what do they add to the list? What do these things give you in a competitive 40k list right now? So they're phenomenally cheap. They're only 24 points per unit, which means they're very expendable. So I don't feel bad throwing them away. They also move very, very fast. Um, so they, you know, pregame move seven inches which helps them get behind cover, get behind center of the board. Um, and they move 12 inches and they reroll their advances. So they go very, very quick and they're very, very cheap. So when you need to expose a unit, they're the best ones to do it. They're great screens. Um, sometimes you just need a, a unit. It doesn't matter what the unit does, how, uh, how good it is in combat, how good it is in shooting. You just need a unit on a point, like on an objective or screening something out. They're very fast. They're very cheap. That's all you really need. Yeah, and it, it, I guess with them being more than three, it gives you access to uh, some secondaries as well, right, that you wouldn't otherwise get maybe for such a cheap unit. And so many armies at the moment have those. So many re-rolls. Man, I think I, I heard you say the word re-rolls like 14 times in there between the commanders and the units that drop down. And then uh, re-rolls for, is it marker like No, wound re-roll that you get. So how important is that in the in the way you've put the list together? Uh, it felt very important. I I really like how consistent the damage output is in the army, especially because a lot of the time your opponent will give you one turn to kill them. So you need to be able to output the damage that you need. So I, I love being able to drop a unit down, give it four rolls to hit and wound. Give another unit, you know, hitting on threes, re-roll ones, re-roll its wound rolls. Give a big squad four rolls to hit. And then they reroll ones for Montka, because you almost always pick Montka. Montka is the house um, tactical doctrine where you turn one, uh, you get a bonus if you're within a certain range of your opponent. The bonus is uh, you reroll ones to wound and your additional AP if they're the closest target within the range. That range is 18 inches on turn one, 12 inches on turn two, nine inches on turn three. And then you can always advance and charge. So what that means is you have reroll ones to wound, you have reroll ones to hit, marker lights give you plus one to hit, you have access to full rerolls to hit, you have access to full rerolls to wound, you have access to full rerolls to hit and wound. So your damage output is super consistent and it's very high. Yeah, and that's isn't that just so key? And it, when you're you know when you're putting a list together, having that consistent damage output is just uh, 
it's just amazing. So uh, one of the things I also heard you say was that you've got a commander who's pretty good in combat. Words not often spoken about Tau, pretty good in combat. And you mentioned something that makes him good in combat, and it just went straight over my head. Can you explain how that works? Absolutely. So he has the prototype system thermoneutronic projector. And what that does is it's a, first off, it's a replacement for a Tau Flamer. That is D6 plus two shots. It doesn't auto hit for whatever reason, but shots um, that are strength four, AP2, two damage. And considering this guy rerolls hits and wounds in the shooting phase, that's pretty strong. But you then also get to make in combat two plus D6 attacks with this weapon on top of your base attacks using the weapon. So in total, since this guy rerolls hits and wounds, he has six plus a D6 attack to strength four minus two, two damage that reroll hits and wounds and he hits on threes. So he actually does punch fairly hard in combat. Now he hits so hard in shooting and so does the rest of the army that him getting into combat is usually not that important. Um, <laughs> yeah. Your opponent's too dead for you to uh, really uh, have anything to charge. But when you need it, it is there. And I gave both of my commanders durability relics just to help them live a little bit longer. I feel like now's a good time to bring Quentin into the conversation. As a long-time Tau player, I'd be interested in your thoughts on Jack's list, Quentin, but also maybe the first thing to do is just talk us through the key differences between your list and his. So I have two words for you. First, cannons. Jack <laughs> took a variety of weapons on his crisis suits. I took one. They all have burst cannons. Every single one of them has burst cannons. Well, you better explain why then. What's so hot about the burst cannons in your mind? Um, so there was really one thing I was worried about going into this tournament. And that is Custodes Bites. Because they are everywhere. There's a lot of them. People run like 12 or 13 of them in a list. And burst cannons, the way I run them, are strength 6, AP2, 1 damage. And you just have 252 shots which just annihilates Custodes' bikes. Yeah, that's a lot of shots, Quentin. That's a lot of shots. Uh, <laughs> in fact, that just seems ludicrous. So uh, other than the burst cannons, you've also, you're not running a far sight Enclave's uh, allied force. You've got a custom sept. What do you get out of that that you don't get from far sight? Right. So I am uh, calm under pressure and pinpoint targeting. Which means if I'm within 12 of you, all of my assault weapons get plus one strength and ignore cover. Which a lot of the times is functionally plus one AP, which matters a lot on high volume but low AP weapons like burst cannons. Right. Okay. So, and that did, sorry, what you just said, that calm under pressure and pinpoint targeting, that's, that's all encompassed in that. Mm -hmm. That's my custom set rates. Yeah, great. And a lot of crisis. There's a lot of crisis. I noticed that you've also got the crew. Carnivores in there. I've never seen the word crute so many times looking through your two lists. It's fantastic. Yeah, Jack named all of the reasons you take them. Yeah, yeah. And a devilfish, again, accelerated burst cannons. <laughs> so good. Uh, so There's a theme. The thing, the thing that everybody was worried about, though, the thing that everybody was thinking about, uh, you know, when Tau started to drop was uh, we were thinking just rail guns. We were just going to see rail guns lined up across the table. And I'm looking through lists. I don't see... Do I see a railgun? Has anyone got a railgun anywhere? No, we don't have a single railgun between the two of us. Uh, the main thing you'll see about our list is that they're fast. Yeah. So so two Talos made the finals. Neither of them had railguns. 
we did see some railguns in lists, and I think actually the third place list at the event. That's unfortunately right. we can't have that many people on the podcast. But the third <laughs> place right. list did have a, a series of uh, railguns on their broadsides. Do you think that the mirror match is just one of the things to consider when you make that decision on railguns? It absolutely is. I I think that the heavy broadside build, which was Sean Rice, I believe his name, Quentin played him. Um, he had six broadsides. Now the problem with broadsides is they're slow, whereas crisis suits are very quick, which means crisis suits can move up the board, avoiding line of sight from the broadsides. Fire and fading, or strike and fading, as it's called, I found out. Um, strike and fading their way up the board, shooting and not getting shot back, which is a big deal. As well as once you made up the board, you can just jump on your opponent with all of your guns and just blow them up. And I believe, uh, I will kick this over to Quentin, but I believe that's what actually happened in your game. So Sean had a quote, uh, and he said, I knew you were always going to hit me first. Uh, Just the way the train was set up, I'm two or three times faster than he was. And unfortunately, the win condition for a lot of Tau matchups is hitting first. So we played kind of cagey, and then turn two... I moved every single crisis suit in my army 12 inches away from him and just annihilated most of his army. Yeah, a big part of the mirror between the final game of Quentin and me was that if one of us moved up, the other one was fast enough to jump all over them and shoot them. But if Quentin can move up the board and set up an alpha strike or beta strike or whatever on his opponent and his opponent can't respond... That's basically game, because Quentin will be able to hit them first. We had to play cagey with each other, because if one of us started edging our way up the board, the other one would just jump all over them. So if we're talking about the two lists that you guys bought and the differences between these two lists, what do you think gave you the edge just in terms of the list that you had and what it was able to do, Jack? So we we talked about this uh, after the game, and I think Quentin and I are both on the same page with this. But I have a much better indirect fire unit than he does. The biggest thing, I think, that gives me the edge in the matchup. Um, my indirect fire unit natively ignores cover. Instead, his ignores cover it's within, if it's within 12 inches of you. Mine has Shadow Sunder reroll all hits, and mine has an extra member in the squad. All of those things combined means mine hit very much harder than his, to the point where it can actually end up killing basically any target with Exemplar of the Montcalf for rerolls to wound, Shadow Sun for rerolls to hit. It can kill a lot of units out of line of sight with full rerolls to hit. Uh, whereas his unit does struggle to kill things if they're outside of line of sight. Just natively hitting on fours being strength four is going to mean that it can only go into a certain variety of targets. So my battle suits were fairly safe in range. His always had to worry about getting shot. That was, I think, the number one advantage that I have. Uh, Quentin, if I can get your. Uh, no, I, I completely agree. I think the biggest advantage you had over me in our final game was your airburst unit could hurt my crisis suits, and my airburst unit could not hurt your crisis suits. Yeah, you did eventually end up firing your airburst into crisis suits, and we'll talk about how that game went, but there was a go turn where you're like, I guess, I guess I have to shoot my airburst into you and try and just do enough damage, and I think you killed a drone and did one wound to a battle suit. I think that's right. It was not a lot. Yeah. So it's, uh, that was, that was the main difference. 
One thing I've got to ask you, actually, there's I've got a bunch of questions, John. I'm sorry, I'm just steamrolling all over the top of this. Uh, if you, you know, if you want to jump in, jump in. But a couple of quick things. Uh, you just mentioned drones, Jack, and it was, you know, I'm used to seeing towel lists with, from the old days, three riptides and then like a thousand drones. And I'm not seeing uh, a lot of drones in this in this list. A couple of shield drones with the crisis uh, suits. Um, how many drones are you looking at, and how important are they in, in the modern Tau army? So I have a fair number of drones. Both of us have a fair number of drones in our army, and I think they're fairly important. Uh, each of my five-man crisis units has four drones, three shield, one marker. Um, each of my three-man bodyguard squads has a shield drone. Uh, and each of my characters have two, which I forgot to mention I have an ethereal and hover drone, because as a Farsight Enclave's allied world, I don't get access to the two commanders that Farsight Enclaves does, but I do get access to uh, Ethereals. So I have an Ethereal and Hover drone with the Humble Stave and two Marker drones. So I have two drones on every one of my characters, and I have four drones on my big units, two drones on my uh, spell suits, and one drone on each of my bodyguard units. Very good for absorbing damage. So when Custodes bikes shoot at you, you take the wounds on the, on the shield drones first, and it absorbs a whole lot of uh, a whole lot of damage. Okay, so my question is, you know, again, Steve has memories of playing against riptides and drones, and it's just waves and waves of drones, all these different units. How have drones changed mechanically? Like we've seen Tau just come out. You know, they're obviously doing very well in the meta, but I imagine that there's a fair number of listeners who, you know, maybe took a short break after LVO, myself included, and maybe haven't actually played against the new Tau yet. Uh, Quentin, what do you? Can you talk to me about uh, drones? Because I know Jack wasn't around for the old book. Yeah, so drones used to be when you would deploy them, they would become their own separate squad. And now they're just members of the unit. So you can allocate saves to them. If you charge the drones, they become... You can, you, you can allocate attacks to the whole unit. That sort of thing. You can see a drone, you can see the whole unit. Um, and that's really important because there's no like failing savior protocols. You can just take them on there. If you have cyclic ion and you overcharge and you roll a one, you could put the wounds on a drone, all that sort of thing. Okay, so basically you used to be able to pass the, the, the wounds off to drones when they were part of a separate unit, but now um, they, well, they're all part of the unit, so you've got like a strat to pass off one wound essentially, where you, you, what, you destroy a drone, you make a one uh, failed save damage zero, but other than you know the one stratagem, drones are part of a squad, you don't mix and match between, you know, you shoot one crisis unit and then the, the broadsides drones take damage. It's never going to be anything like that, right? Well, you That's can, totally correct, yes. You can actually, with the Savior Protocol strat, kill okay. drones out of a separate unit. Got it. So the one strat is one drone uh, from an, anywhere nearby. Other than that, though, it's just everything's kind of in a squad. That's correct. So a lot simpler, which probably for the best... Because, God, it got annoying when, you know, you shot everything in your army into one riptide and just drones, drones, drones. It was kind of the original bodyguard mechanic because you'd have drones behind a wall tanking hits for a riptide in front of the wall. Nobody was a big fan of that. It was kind of a boring play style no matter what you were doing, whether you were playing into it, whether you were playing with it. Nobody was a big fan of that. So I'm very glad with what they changed, with how they changed it. It's a lot more interactive, too. Your opponent can fire, like, if you have Sagittarium, for example, you can fire Sagittarium guns into the unit, at which point they say, I'm going to take my saves on the Iridium Armor guy that's in cover, and so they take their saves on that guy, and 
then you can fire your salvo launchers in. They've already started taking saves on the guy with Iridium instead of a drone. And you can uh, you can force the saves through onto the guys that you want. Uh, so it's more interactive. And I think that's always a good thing for the game. Uh, Quentin, you just mentioned Savior Protocols, and it, it might be just worth, uh, and Jack's already given us a bit of an explanation, but the way Savior Protocols used to work, you'd roll a dice to see if it, if it came off, and then your big damage weapons could just go onto a drone, and then it would be, <laughs> you'd roll one invulnerable save on your drone, and it would live, uh, which was, yeah, again, as Jack was just saying, nobody really enjoyed that. Uh, has anything changed as far as that goes, that particular mechanic of being able to soak up six wounds on one drone and then save it anyway? So you have a save on a drone now, and if you pass the save like any other model, you pass the save. Um, so before, shield drones got a feel no pain, which was the thing that let them survive. And they no longer have that. They just have two wounds. Okay. All right. So there's no doing the, that jankiness from, uh, from the earlier edition. Um. I'm curious also with the two of you having played against each other and playing against a whole bunch of other people, now that you've been through a tournament, I'll start with you, Jack, and then get to you, Quentin. But Jack, is there anything looking at Quentin's list that you go, yep, that was great. I'd like to drop that into the list I have. And, and what would you get rid of? And then Quentin, same question for you. Looking at Jack's list, do you adopt any of the elements of that list? So I do want to drop some of my plasma rifles for burst cannons. Um, I think probably one of the bodyguard squads is going to replace their plasma rifles with the burst cannons and just get my get myself a little bit more quantity of shots, or at least have the option to, because a lot of the time it would be the bodyguard units deep striking down and two CP re-rolling hits and wounds. And um, when you do that, I like to have the option of either re-rolling to hit and wound with plasma rifles or re-rolling to hit and wound with a million burst cannon shots. So I think I am going to switch one of the three-man squads over to double burst cannon. Otherwise, I think I'm going to leave the list basically unchanged. Okay. Quentin, same question for you. There are three things I want from Jack's list. Number one, I want his Everest unit, and Shadow Sun included. Number two, I want to switch to Farsight Enclaves because I want Drop Zone Clear. Number three, as Jack has pointed out, to no end. My list has a horrible range issue. All of my guns are 18-inch range. So some of my bursts are going to plasma. Yeah, we, uh, we had a whole car ride up, and we were staying in the same hotel room. Then we had a whole car ride back down, and we had plenty of conversations about it. I was like, so if, uh, if you move 18, right, and you shoot 18, that, that's the longest you can shoot, right? And you're like, yes. So... Real quick, Quentin, you said that you're going to drop some of the burst cannons to uh, get some, some plasma in there. How many burst cannons are we talking? Because you've got quite a few to drop. Are you dropping all the way down to like two, or are you still going to stay in like the 20s or something? Um, so one of the, the burst burst cyclic is staying. One of them is going to plasma plasma burst, or plasma plasma cyclic. I need to figure out if I want flamers or burst on the airburst unit. And then I think I'm probably going to keep everything else the same. The burst cannons performed phenomenally well all tournament. Is this the problem of they've performed well when you shot them and that range limitation meant sometimes you didn't? That is exactly it. All right. If you're within range of the burst cannons, 
you get chewed up. It's just a massive quantity of shots with all of the rerolls that my army has, except it's applied to a billion shots. And so it will tear into you like a buzzsaw. I'd like to take some credit for, uh, you know, convincing uh, Quentin that weight of dice was worth it by using Devagons on him. And unfortunately, this is just a much more horrifying conclusion. Yeah. Because something that you have to understand about the crisis suits is when, first off, they move 10, they can advance and shoot. And there's a 1CP strat, which I don't remember the name for because I just read the book like two weeks ago, that lets you move six inches and shoot. I'm sure Quentin knows the name. Dynamic offensive. Thank you. So lets you move auto advance six inches, shoot, no penalty. And then the cold star can point at a unit and say, you auto advance eight inches. and shoot. So these things can move 18 inches and then shoot and then fire and fade. So they're hyper mobile and the range issue isn't as big a deal as it would otherwise be, but it still is an issue. So it's something that uh, probably going to, Quinn's thinking about changing. I feel like uh, drop zone clear is massively powerful, like that ability to re-roll hits and wounds. I know it's CP heavy, uh, which brings me to the next question, which is, uh, you know, you, you, you have a, a couple of things you're going to be using CP on, and they're pretty expensive. But other than drop zone clear for you, Jack, what else are the big stratagems that you need to be saving CP for through the game, and how many do you start with? So my list starts with six. I believe Quentin starts with seven. Um... I have a, an ethereal who on a two-up, because of the humble stave, it's a relic, on a two-up gives me an extra CP every turn. It's very valuable. So I generally start the game at eight. And there's a couple stratagems you use. I usually use drop zone clear once or twice in a game. Very strong. Uh, dynamic offensive that Quentin just said. Very strong as well. Gives you, gives you more mobility. Mobility is great. Um, an amazing stratagem is strike and fade. It lets you, you activate the start of your shooting phase. You select one of your units and you immediately shoot with them. And then they move six inches. So it is a little awkward because you do have to fire that unit first. But it does have some weird interactions where if your opponent has something that also triggers at the start of the shooting phase, you can kind of get your shooting in before they can activate their stratagem. Very weird. Comes up sometimes. And then you can immediately come back out of line of sight. And for a shooting army, that's amazing. I get to pop out, shoot with my crisis suits, and then immediately pop back behind terrain, and my opponent gets to just sit there and take it. Or they don't shoot. Either one of those I'm fine with. You know, I keep hearing Eldar players talk about how their fire and fade, you take minus three inches through a, through a terrain piece. You don't have that, right? Just straight? Oh, oh no. It's, it's also an, like a normal move, so I can just fly? go. Yeah, I can fly. Good. Yeah, okay. It's a normal move up to six. So. I can go up on a building and then come back down. That doesn't cost me. <laughs> or just in front of him behind a wall over and over and over. Over and over and over and over again. Quentin and I were both doing that back and forth. He'd move up, fire, uh, strike and fade back. I'd move up, strike and fade back. Um, and I was doing it, you know, I'd do that three to four times a game, every game. Very strong. Same here. Yep. So how important is the movement phase then for you? Just because I'm obviously that's a strategy that can only be used with one unit, and that then would leave the rest of the units not doing it and if you want to shoot them they're going to have to be in positions to do that so how challenging is it to get your unit that you want to do it with into the right spot and then keep your other units you know hidden or just poking out doing what they need to do it's a lot easier with uh the crisis suit build than with other armies uh as i said before crisis suits move 10 and can advance eight and then strike and fade 
So your mobility is actually pretty ridiculous. You move 18 inches and then shoot. So it's, it's very easy to find the angle that you need because your mobility is off the chain. Actually very fast. So I want to make a quick uh, mobility note slash question here. Um, we've got Montca and Kalyan, and I think the consensus so far has been that, that Montca is the more popular choice. Um, did, did both of you choose Montca in every game? I did. Okay. Yes. All right, so Montca is the most popular choice, so let's talk about that a little bit. Montca gives you mobility buffs in the first three turns, right? It does. Well, it lets you advance and shoot with no penalty. Otherwise, you advance and shoot at minus one, mm-hmm. which you do have ways to ignore negative hit modifiers, but it's not, it's not ideal. But then it also gives you an AP boost and re-roll ones to wound, both of which are very good. The biggest thing is that it's in the first three turns, and those are the most decisive turns in the game of 40k. By Kalyan triggers in turns three, four, and five, which means that by the time you get there, you're just not going to have as much of your army benefiting from those rules as Montka would be. Montka, 100% of your army is benefiting from them on turn one, generally. Whereas Kalyan, you know, a lot of the time it could be 30%. 20%. So it's it would have to be much, much stronger. And it, it isn't quite as much. It gives you exploding sixes on turn three to hit and shooting. And then that goes to fives and then fours by turn five. It lets you fall back and shoot it in that minus one to hit. I, I feel like the big thing here is that, you know, obviously extra AP and reels of wound uh, once for Monka is amazing. I feel like the big strength here is that because your entire army can advance and shoot no penalty, it's not just the important units. It's right. that the commanders the small crisis units, the stealth teams, all of the little things can just advance and shoot, no problem, and just you just get a little bit farther out when you need that to be what you're doing. Absolutely. It really adds up over the course of a game when every single unit can do it. Um, I had to unlearn having to consider whether I advanced or not in my first couple games because, you know, I'm used to with regular armies, you take a penalty for advancing. So you have to... You think if you want to move, and then you see, do I want to advance? And you consider that for each unit. Whereas in Montca, you just go, all right, this unit's moving. I roll my advance and go. Like, you don't even think about it. Yeah. I think actions is the only penalty, right? That's, that's it. Yeah. And um, speaking of actions, you can shoot and do actions with the ethereal. So, oh. yeah, we can I'm get into I... how that helps you later. But, uh, <laughs> it can't hurt. It can't hurt. Awesome. So... Um... I, actually, that, that was where I kind of wanted to go next, was I wanted to talk a little bit more about how the army plays on the tabletop. I've heard a lot of scary words. Um, I've learned that uh, if I'm within 12 inches of a burst cannon, uh, no, I'm not anymore. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it turns out indirect, actually still pretty good when you give it reels to hit. But just play style-wise, how does the, how does the Tau army work? Like, uh, again, let's say, you know, someone in our audience maybe hasn't played against the new Tau yet. They remember... You know, the castle that just sat back there soaking firepower while shooting heavy burst cannons at you. Playstyle-wise, how is this different? Because I'm guessing the answer is a lot. It, it does feel quite different. It's still a defensive army. That much has not changed. Although it can be quite aggressive when your opponent opens themselves up. Uh, it does have to start out the game fairly defensive. I found the best way to play Tau is to hang back. And you have phenomenal secondaries, and you're very good at primary as well, because you're very durable units that can move all over the board and find exactly where you want to be. And you have great secondaries. To the last is phenomenal. Uh, you're good at stranglehold. You're great at retrieve uh, knockman data. 
that you have great secondaries, generally better than your opponents, and you have good primary, and you have the ability to have indirect, so your opponent's primary is bad. You rack up a score lead on your opponent. They're required to make something happen in order to even up the score, and then you table them. Um, it's a pretty good format for how a game can go. Uh, that's how a lot of my games went. Quentin, how, how about you? Did you find yourself falling into a pattern like that? Yeah, yeah, I, I really did. A lot of using airburst to establish an early point lead. And then I would always try and bait my opponent into rushing me because typically I could sit far enough back that they couldn't hit me with everything in a single turn. And then once they exposed their entire army, they went from having one to not in one turn. Yeah, that's that's really uh that works. <laughs> yeah, if you put your entire army in front of a Tau army, there's one army left on the board after that. I feel like just from like watching it, I've played against Tau once and I've watched quite a few other people's first games into Tau. And I feel like you, everyone's first game into Tau is going to be really rough if you don't quite grasp what they do yet. Not that the second game is going to you know make you bulletproof, but I think that Tau punish people who play the matchup wrong harder than anything I've seen since on release Dukari. But you can learn it. Yes. You can you can learn the Tau matchup, but like just from a pure what to do, what not to do, if you choose wrong against Tau, instant punishment, you're, you're, you're not recovering. You're, you're done. Like the game is over if you expose your whole army for no reason. Yeah. Uh, plenty of people are used to, you know, putting their army in the center, taking their lumps, and then jumping on their opponent. That is not a workable strategy into Tau. You need to find <laughs> something else to do. Uh, can I ask you, how do the marker lights work now? What's the, uh, what's the system for them? Marker lights are now an action that you start at the beginning of your movement phase and end at the start of your shooting phase. And you, for every marker light model in the unit that has a marker light, you roll 1d6, and on a 3+, plus, you pick a marker light token to, to put on any eligible unit you could shoot within 36. So if a character is bodyguarded, you can't shoot one. If the, something's behind line of sight, you can't see it, etc., etc. Um, for every unit that then shoots at that other unit that has a marker light token on it, you get plus one to hit. And then you remove one marker light token. It's not optional. You have to burn it. Um, so if you put five marker light tokens, the first five units that shoot at whatever that unit is get plus one to hit. Got it. Okay. So there's not different levels of assistance. And it's an action. And uh, we were just talking about, you know, that you can shoot and do actions. Does that apply across the board that uh, the whole army can shoot and do actions? Or does, is that a stratagem you have to use? Or how does that work? So that so, is the uh, ethereal points at a unit within six oh, inches. Oh, gotcha. And yep. says you can shoot and do actions. Now, an interesting thing about the marker light action is it completes at the start of your shooting phase, which means you can then go on to shoot with that unit. Um, how uh, most of the time you cannot move while doing an action. So if it starts at the start of the shooting phase, you can't move. But drones have a particular caveat where they are, and vehicles too, where they are allowed to move while they're doing the action doesn't fail. The other caveat there is Pathfinders start the action at the end of the movement phase so they can move and do it. Okay. So Pathfinders can, the drones can, the vehicles can, 
than like the little marker lights that are sprinkled on the characters and the fire warriors potentially. Uh, not so much they can't move into it. Is that correct, Twin? Yeah, yeah, that's correct, yes. Okay. Um, my question then is, uh, you know, I'm going to be honest, when you read the, the Tau words to me, Jack, some of it blurred out a little bit. How many marker lights do you actually have? Because I know Farsight Enclaves or their successors, as I will call them here, not their allied worlds, um, but Farsight Enclave successors, they count as having a marker light if they're within 12 inches. How many did you actually put in the list for the over 12 inches scenarios? So I have eight in the list, and largely, I, I don't need eight at any one point in time, although you, for whatever reason, marker lights are cursed, and they decide they don't want to roll three ups. Like, they don't. I'd roll eight dice and hit three times every time. Um, mostly, it's a cheaper drone than a shield drone. So when you're doing the, if you fail a save, kill a drone, it's better if that drone is cheaper, especially if you're not using the invuln on it. Right? Mm -hmm. You're taking the invuln on the guy, failing it, save your protocol to kill the drone. You're not taking the invuln on the drone, might as well be cheaper. Um, it also means if I have all my characters, my characters can be bodyguarded in front of my army. Your opponent is unable to shoot them, but I can still get marker lights. Uh, I also have a marker light on each one of my big units so that they can marker light for themselves if need be. Okay. So quite a bit scattered around, and especially on the commanders. You know, we haven't even, we've barely even talked about the bodyguards um, at all in this list. They only really came up, they actually only came up at all against Quentin, uh, where they played a fairly large role. We can talk about that when we get to the game. General, what happens is each of the characters is a is a three man unit. So you can stretch them way out within three as long as the back drone is within three inches of the bodyguards. The whole unit can't be shot at. So you go bodyguards three inches away, drone two inches away, second drone two inches away. You know, commander who shoots really hard and cannot be shot back, and that's a very good interaction. But especially in the Taumir. Now, that never really came up because killing things within 18 inches, I could use Fire and Fade for that. Most of my commanders only shoot 18. But in the Tau matchup, it matters quite a bit. So basically, these commander and drone units are like an unholy fusion of St. Celestine and a Talon Master? That would be the best way to put it, yes. Uh, they're also just three-man units that can come down. Uh, I'm basically breaking the rule of three by having two Crisis Bodyguards and two Crisis Suits because they are separate data sheets which does help quite a bit. And they're also just cheap little units that can come down and then shoot with real hits and wounds. I do like that. And, you know, we've already talked about drop zone clear a little bit. Uh, real quick, can you repeat how it works regarding size? Absolutely. So if you have three or fewer crisis models in the unit, it costs two CP. And if you have four or more crisis models in the unit, it costs three. It's worth it at either CP expenditure. So if you have a full five or six man crisis unit or a three man crisis unit, it's worth it. Two CP is great for three. Three CP is amazing for five or six. Um, so I included some little squads to go in little small gaps in my opponent's army. They're also cheaper, which lets me fit more independent units in my army. Very nice. And then if a five man wants to start in reserves, it can come down and just blow a hole in the moon, you know, with the level of firepower that it can put out. I never ended up doing that. I have access to full rerolls to hit. I never ended up putting a five-man in reserve because I have access to full rerolls to hit, and I have access to full rerolls to wound within 12 inches. And I have access to real ones to wound. So I never really needed it if I'm only going to expose one unit at a time. In addition, when a five-man comes 
when when a unit comes down, it can't strike and fade. So if I drop a five man down, it's a sitting target. A lot of the time I took to the last. My to the last are the two five mans plus their drones. And my precision of the hunter crisis suit uh, commander. So what that meant was I don't want to just leave it out in the open. Um, in addition, it 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 puts too much pressure on the position that my stealth suits are in. Stealth suits with a uh, relay can call or homing beacon can call in a unit of uh, crisis suits turn one from deep strike, but you have to arrive within three inches. Now you can game that somewhat because the entire unit does not have to be within three inches, just the unit. So one drone can go three inches away and then you can string the rest of the unit out. But it does chain your first deep strike to the stealth suits. And if they kill your stealth suits, you can't come in turn one. And it just gives your opponent a potential out of being able to get very aggressive with you in a way I don't, I don't want. If they manage to disable your turn one deep strike and it's three guys coming in, whatever. If they manage to disable your turn one deep strike and you left a five man in reserve and they're pressuring you, definitely not whatever. You are now in trouble. So I just don't want to lose that much tempo. Okay. Thanks. Um, I mean, who would have thought, right? We rolling all hits and all wounds. Better? That's right. That's it's pretty good. It's pretty, pretty good. good. Pretty good. Okay. <laughs> now, Basic Tau does have a similar stratagem called Drop Threat Acquisition. It's the exact same as Drop Zone Clear, except it does not reroll wounds, just hits. Um, same thing, two CP for three or fewer. 3CP for four or more. Obviously, it's not bad. Not as good as Drop Zone Clear. Yeah, that's... It's <laughs> substantially worse. Oh, can, can I ask the... Uh, aside from points, is there a reason to take five instead of six crisis suits in a unit? Why, why would you not just pack out six and have as much shooting as you can? Absolutely. There's actually a pretty big reason. Uh, I think a six-man is totally fine. But the reason both me and Quinn, I believe... Went with the five man instead of the six man is because strike and fade cost one CP if you have five or fewer crisis models in the unit, whereas it costs two if you have six. And that one extra guy, yeah, there it is. <laughs> you, you probably just cut him, put him in a separate unit, and uh, pay one for your strike and fade because you're using it all the time. I'm pretty sure, Quentin, is that the uh, is that yep, the logic? That, that is exactly the reason I have a five man team instead of a six man team. Yeah, and as we've discussed with these Tau strats, they're pretty potent, so you want as many CP as you can milk out of the list. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm interested in, uh, Quentin, whether or not you think the Ethereal is worth taking. I didn't, did I see it in your list or not? Did I miss that? Yeah, he's in there. Um, so it's a 60-point character that gives you 5 CP, leadership 10, a 5-up for you in the pain, the ability to shoot and do actions. You can bodyguard and put him on a second... On a center, a center objective with drones. He's like okay in melee. He's a great um, caddy for a warlord trait. It's what I used him for. He moves ten inches. He's sixty-five points. Yeah, he's pretty good. He's pretty good for sixty-five points. Pretty good. I feel like if he's if he's getting into melee, then possibly things haven't worked out as well as you hope they would. Um, let Let's ask about secondaries. What are the secondary? Did you build the army, Jack, around secondaries? that you wanted to take, or did you look at the secondaries afterwards and just kind of take whatever was on offer? I absolutely built the army around secondaries. Uh, my main game plan is to be better at secondaries than my opponent, which forces them to come to me, which opens them up for the counter-strike. That doesn't work if my secondaries aren't particularly good. So I designed the list to be able to take a bunch of passive secondaries, which forces my opponent out into the open. So in that vein, I took uh, Stranglehold, which is just a very good secondary in general. 
And I designed my list around to the last. Uh, my to the last are the two five-man crisis squads and my commander, which means that if I sit back, it's very hard to kill them. Uh, the two five-man crisis squads are very, very durable and strike and fade all game, and I'm incentivized to protect them either way, and the character's a character. So it's very difficult to kill. So if I sit back, I'm going to get 15 on that, likely getting 15 on Stranglehold, and then I'm pretty good at Retrieve Knockman data. I have a six-man a stealth suit team, four stealth suits plus two drones, which means when I do retrieve knockman data with them, I automatically succeed at it because a unit of pure drones cannot do actions, but a unit that includes drones can count them as models for retrieve knockman data. So they can go back into reserve later in the game, come out and do it. And a big way that I got retrieve knockman data was as my big units of crisis suits are moving around shooting and strike and fading and just moving all over the board, the ethereal points at them and says, you can shoot and do action. So my my big unit that ordinarily you don't do actions with your big key players, well, this one's also just going to do retrieve knockman data in a quarter while shooting. I've started calling it Noctarius data because I can never keep the name straight. Uh, <laughs> I, still I, I like that to catch on. Yeah. <laughs> can, I, um, can I ask a question about range then? If you're talking about your secondaries just sitting back, you've got crisis suits sitting back. They're so potent. You Do you want them to be sitting back for a whole game? And I, I guess... You know, if it's worth 15 points, you do. But at the same time, uh, you've got Stranglehold, which means in a five-objective mission, you're going to have to jump out into the middle. To a top player like you, this is going to seem like a stupid question. But to me, uh, as a, you know, just a learning player, I'm I'm trying to figure out how these things work together to the last and Stranglehold. Seems to me you want to jump out into the middle to get that, but you want to stay back as well. I know you've got lots of other units, but how does that work? How do they marry together? So... Stranglehold is just a very reliable secondary. You Basically, you want to be taking your opponent off objectives and taking objectives yourself no matter what you're doing. If I'm letting my opponent sit on all their objectives every turn of the game, I'm probably losing because they're going to score 12s every single turn, probably get their mission-specific uh, primary objective repeatedly. It's, it's not going to be a good time. So I have to take them off objectives no matter what I'm doing. Stranglehold is just a byproduct of the thing I already want to be doing. Now, how will I do that without exposing my to the last? Well, strike and fade is very good for that. Uh, I can pop out, blast my opponent off an objective, and then hop back behind terrain. That's very good. I have the cheap little units that can run onto objectives. So um, a squad of four crude hounds, very fast, gets on an objective, and I blow my opponent off the objective and strike and fade back behind a wall. That's my objective now. That's my stranglehold. Uh, it's very strong. Now, against Custodes on six objective missions, you take, uh, Quentin, what's the name of the secondary? Uh, decisive Action. Thank you. I'm, names were very hard for me this weekend. I would just describe it to my opponent. But what it is, is over the first uh, three turns of the game, if you took Montca, if you control half or more of the objectives at the end of your turn, you get four points. So that does cap out at 12, but if there's a six objective mission against Custodes, we don't want to go across the mid-board, uh, midline of the board. You just get a 12, and that's totally fine. That's better than their secondaries, because um, those secondaries are not particularly good. They just rely on denying your secondaries. We'll get to matchups later, but that's basically how you would force them out into the open. Now, in terms of having units to put on the center objectives, Quentin actually taught me a really cool trick in our game. Uh, Quentin, uh, how do Tau have units on demand? So there's a strat called designated tasking, which is in your command phase, you pick a unit that contains both drone and non-drone models, and it becomes two separate units, one containing all of the drone models, 
one containing all of the non-drone models. So when I gave against Jack, I needed a, a unit to go grab strangleholds. So I split my drone and my ethereal, and I got strangleholds with a single marker drone. Yeah, and I guess you really see the value of that, because if you're kind of planning on that being your game plan, even as your units get shipped, you can always save one drone. Yeah. Like you could you could start tanking and you know you start pulling the drones, then you're like, okay, I'm gonna leave the last drone in this unit and now I'm gonna start taking on the suits. So one drone less probably isn't a huge deal for tanking firepower. But if you need units, especially, you know, crew crew towns, they're really fragile. They're cheap, but they're fragile. So you I can see running out of chaff a little early. That's a great tool there. Yes. That was at a point in the game where I had killed all of Quentin's little things. And I was expecting him to have to start making the hard choices of sacrificing characters or real units on the center objective. And he was just like, no, designated tasking, one marker drawn. I was like, I see you. Was, okay, that was cool. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, really not, it's nice to learn new tricks. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay, excellent. So I kind of want to, you know, I know you've both already talked a little bit about where the list uh, is probably going to go moving forward. I know Quentin talked about the three things you wanted to change. Jack, you talked about getting... Just a few burst cannons in there. Just a couple sous a, Just a little bit. Um, I, I don't know what that means. It's um, a little bit. Okay, <laughs> just a little bit. Um, my kind of question is, is um, what's the one thing that you wanted but didn't make the cut? Because, Jack, I've, I've seen you write lists a lot of the times. You never have written a list that started off under points. No. You always write like a 2,100-point list, and you're like, this is so good. I'm like, okay, but like, please make it legal. What what's the thing that you want to make the cut but just doesn't like it's almost there but it's not quite in the list. I really want an extra world of trade, and we can talk about mm -hmm. uh, Shadowsome. Yep. I really want an extra world of trade. I either want uh, through Unity Devastation, which is a, an aura of Quentin. You're going to have to correct me if I'm wrong on that one, but it's an aura of sixes to wound or an additional AP, which is very good for putting that many shots in the air. After having played the list, I don't think you need it. So what I think I would really like, especially in the meta of Phoenix Lords and if Mark's stomping around Gazgul, um, it's the Farsight Enclave-specific Warlord trait. You gain an additional... Master of the Killing Blow, I think. I, I think you are correct about that. It, you gain an extra... I believe it's you gain an extra point of AP and you ignore Feel No Pains and anything that prevents you from taking wounds. And that is... Very strong. It's just every gun on them does that. So I would really like to be able to take one Cold Star Commander with that, and you just ignore Feel No Pains, ignore damage mitigation. It doesn't ignore minus one damage, but you ignore Feel No Pains, you ignore damage caps, and you just blaze right through that, and you also get an additional point of AP. Very mm -hmm. solid. I would really like an extra Warlord trait. Do Tau have any mechanics to double up Warlord traits on a, on a person? They unfortunately don't. Got it. So three is the most warlord traits you can have in a talus. It is, and if you include Shadow Sun, a thing I really like, mm -hmm. you uh, her warlord trait is locked to master the Kalyan, which is not particularly great. Yeah, and it's especially not particularly great if she's the only target for it in your list. Mm -hmm. Basically, her warlord trait, for all intents and purposes, is point at a unit within twelve inches. And give it full rerolls to hit, which is a phenomenal warlord trait if you treat it as her warlord trait. Now, does so obviously Shadowson is the warlord in your list because she's in a supreme command. Absolutely. Does she have to be because of her data sheet, or just because you didn't want to pay for the detachment she's in? Uh, I would rather not pay for the detachment. She's okay, in. so at this point, yes. you kind of see, you know, she also she also does have to be. 
Okay, so if she's the list, she has to be the warlord. She, she has like a, a golem and ball kind of role. She does. She okay, does. Cool. She and uh, Farsight have that restriction. So if they're in the same list together, the only way that could happen is if um, she is in a supreme command, pretty much, which means she will override him. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. he can't override her. Basically, because she has to be. Got it. Okay. All right. Um, the one thing that I like always look at and I like kind of want is I want a unit of Vespid because I always get nervous about knockman data. Like your knockman data plan seems pretty good, but I always worry about, you know, the one kind of tricksy army that's going to shut off your options. And I just like having one extra unit. I will be honest. I do want slightly better retrieve knockman data now that I play <laughs> with the list. So what that honestly could be is giving a bodyguard unit to extra drones so I can auto do it. Um, that might just add a, the slight level of flexibility more that I need so that they can come down and shoot or maybe come down behind terrain and then get, you know, mm-hmm. you can shoot and do actions and jump into your opponent's quarter. Something that isn't a full five-man, which I found I'm, I had to do in a couple games. I would just jump, like, a to the last into their quarter and just be like, all right, I retrieved Nocturia's data, and you're probably not going to kill me. Yeah. Definitely your army's mobile enough to max it after you've tabled someone. I'm just worried if you find yourself in a closed, grindy game or... You're not just one-shotting people off the board. Getting points 8 and 12 could be a little tricky. Yeah, yeah. Is, uh, this, again, this is our curiosity. Is the ethereal action and shoot, is that a selection in the command phase or is it an aura? It's a selection. So it won't work on someone arriving from reserves. It certainly doesn't. Okay, good um, to know. Usually getting 8 was pretty easy. 12 could be fairly hard. Fortunately, most of the time, 8 was enough. But yes, I do want to make my retrieve Noctarius data slightly sticking. Be- slightly it's sticking. better. I do want to make that slightly better. So that is something I think I'm going to work on and just try and think about what I can do to get that fourth quarter. Um, the theoretical game plan, right, would be around turn three or four, I wall of mirrors and put my uh, put my stealth suits back into reserve. And then they come out the following turn and rod in my opponent's quarter or retrieve Noctarius data in my opponent's quarter. Uh, that's not 100% reliable. And if they die earlier on in the game, which they tend to do, they're skirmishers, uh, then I don't have access to that. So I, I do. I, th- I think I do want to make the list slightly better at it. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, if we're just making changes, I assume that plasmas cost more than burst cannons? No. No? No. They're the same. I broke John. I hate this book. Um. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're the same points. Okay, never mind. Wow, plasma's cheap. Why are you, why are you dropping that? I, I don't know. Okay. <laughs> I just see the long range uh, damage three anti, you know, gun. I, I, like, yeah. what I want is the ability to drop a squad down and just go, I'm rerolling hits and wounds, and here's 45 shots. Yeah, I can it's see addicting. It, it is, as opposed to six. I can see the appeal. All right, it's fair. Sorry. Well, I counted the cyclics, but 45 versus 15, you know? 30. For the three man squad. It's too too many shots for me either way. That's a three man squad putting out forty five shots by the way, yeah. reeling hits and wins. <laughs> Why not? Why not? Oh boy! At AP one, potentially two coordinated engagement. If we're talking about strats, you pick two uh, sept units that can see the same target, and they both must target them, but they get plus one AP to all their guns when they do so. So you pick your ethereal or something else that doesn't matter, and you pick a unit that you want, and that unit that you want gets minus one AP. Or if you're looking at something that's very durable and you think it's going to take two units to kill, which is fairly rare, um, you just 
coordinate engager on both of those, and you get minus one AP on your opponent's uh, on your opponent's unit. So you can stack AP really fast. So just before we wrap this up, I want to kind of make sure that I know what the game plan is for Tau. Just kind of want to wrap it all up and you know make sure that we put a bow on it. So your game plan is park on primaries with just a good army, and then have a very good secondary plan that's probably better better than your opponent's. And as soon as your opponent realizes that they're not going to win if nothing happens, they come at you. And as soon as they come at you, everything in line of sight slash range evaporates in a Halo Mist? Yes. Okay. So, if I'm trying to beat Tau, which, by the way, I am. I, I know. I'm asking. Me too. I'm um, going to step off this army. <laughs> so, I need, to, I need to figure out a good way to deny you your secondaries a little bit or your primaries. With like, and also have like watertight secondaries myself. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Possibly even airtight. Possibly even airtight. So it sounds like I need to be like Gene Stealer Cult wearing Terminator armor. The problem with Gene Stealer Cult, even if they were in Terminator armor. No, no, I think that would do it, actually. I think that probably would do it. <laughs> um, well, we can talk about matchups. I think we're talking to talk about matchups in part two. Uh, I think we can get into that. It's going to be very nuanced, though. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm really excited to figure out how each army is going to take their best crack at Tau. Um, but. Steve, do you want to tell people what's uh, waiting for them in part two? Yeah, I was the only. I had one more question, which was: oh, uh, so Don't sorry. you feel a little bit dirty taking Shadow Sun in a Farside Enclave's uh, army, Shadow Sun, and an Ethereal, mind you, two things that Farsight would not approve of? Well, uh, this actually isn't Farsight Enclaves; they're just allied to them. <laughs> so you know, Farsight can. It's hard to hate from outside the club. You know, Farsight can do his own thing on the Farsight Enclaves. But he doesn't tell me how to run my show. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's funny because, um, you know, as if people didn't have enough reasons to dislike Tau. Now here's another one. They're just that good. So, listen, uh, thank you guys for being here. Quentin, thank you for being here. Jack, thank you. John, thank you. We are going to go straight into part two of this episode. Folks, what you need to do is make sure that you have subscribed so that you can hear part two of this episode because this is going to be good. We're going to find out how other armies play into Tau and John's going to ask the probing questions so that we can maybe figure out some, if there are any, chinks in the armor and how we can play against this new Tau force that is out there. Uh, We'll see you in part two. In the meantime, this is The Art of War. Like what you just listened to? Check out Art of War Down Under and Art of War Unbroken on the competitive 40K network. The Art of War 40K.com.